Jim Crowley then asked, are we in a deal bubble? And Kurt and Dave's uh, reaction was, no, we're, we're not at this point. Rush, on the other hand, felt that although generally we're not, you know, on the smaller, medium-sized deals, maybe not, you know, his comment was, at the high end, it feels bubbly. <laughs> so that, you know, at the high end of the deal, maybe we're getting on the edge of, you know, we're starting to get into a bubble. It's starting to get bubbly. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. Uh, today is a solo cast, and on today's solo cast, I'm going to be talking about um, some of the learnings that uh, I jotted down from a, uh, a phenomenal event that I spoke at um, a couple of weeks ago uh, that was um, hosted by Echelon Partners, one of the investment bankers in the uh, investment advisory space. Uh, and um, every year they do their Deal and Dealmakers Summit. And I've been fortunate to speak there, uh, I think, at least three times over the years. Um, so uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, they had a phenomenal lineup of, uh, of people and uh, who were on the, the, the speakers and on the panels, et cetera, and some great information from Echelon itself on deals uh, in the investment advisory space. And I, I wanted to do a recap of that. The event started out um, with um, a experts session. Basically, he had, uh, Dan had uh, Dan Sievert, who runs uh, Echelon, had um, 30 some odd experts, including me. I was fortunate enough to, uh, uh, to be one of the experts. And uh, there were uh, four half hour sessions where participants in the uh, conference got to sit down with an expert and basically get a half hour of their time, you know, and ask any question they wanted and that kind of stuff. And I think that's a brilliant um, format that a lot of the, uh, some of the panels, I mean, some of the uh, conferences uh, are starting to do now, you know, and it gives the audience access to some of the speakers uh, uh, like me, uh, some of the other experts would not uh, speaking at this particular event, but they were still there, um, you know, and frankly, it gets people some free time with an expert. So it's a big value add for uh, the, uh, you know, f for a, a conference, if you happen to be, you know, running one and, and, and putting it on, it's certainly something to think about that I think, uh, you know, makes some sense because um, people always find value from that. So, um, I, you know, I, I got to meet with, uh, with four folks and, you know, give them some information, uh, build some new relationships, uh, actually, uh, one of the people was somebody I had met at a prior event and uh, and uh, had some specific stuff and has now, you know, become a client. So it's generated some business already, uh, which is phenomenal. Um, so that was uh, that was the first uh, evening, the starting around four o'clock. There was a dinner after that. And then there was a full day session the next day. And that's really what I'm going to talk about in terms of in terms of the content. Um, so the event started out the next day with a uh, session called Buyers uh, of, uh, of the Roundtable. Uh, and that session um, was hosted by Jim Crowley, uh, who's the CEO of BNY uh, Mellon Pershing. And then he had on the panel uh, Rush Benton from um, CapTrust, Dave Welling, the CEO of uh, Mercer Advisors, and then Kurt Masinski, President and CEO of Serity Partners. Uh, so some of the things they talked about, 
is that uh, the cost of money is low right now. I think we all know that. Uh, frankly, across industries, certainly in the RA space, there's a lot of capital available, and it's pretty reasonable. Uh, the trend is that uh, that deals are continue to grow, um, meaning that um, you know the, the deal volume and size uh, continue to grow. So there's about 230 trillion dollars in deal volume in 2018. Uh, Kurt talked about uh, one of the biggest challenges being evaluating cultural fit. Um, which is uh, crucial because uh, there's a need not only for the principals to buy in, but to then advocate to their team. And one of the quotes he said, which I like, was culture cannot be acquired or mandated. It must be embraced. So, you know, the way I look at that is, uh, you know, too often what happens is um, the, uh, you know, execs are involved with uh, the negotiations and putting the deal together, and then they sort of spring it on their, the rest of their team uh, down the line later. And this is true in any industry. Uh, and then, you know, it's sort of a forced integration of uh, the, you know, the target, or if you are the target, into uh, the buyer. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and people aren't prepared and, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, they have, they have problems uh, with, um, you know, with integrating and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, we've had some guests uh, on the show, uh, on the podcast on prior episodes that have talked about, you know, integration of people and how you do that well. And Kurt was certainly pointing out that that's something that's got to be done. And, 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 and basically you need buy-in, you need the team to embrace it. You can't impose it on them. Um, so uh, Dave then talked about uh, some seller challenges, which is, you know, meaning why people sell and, uh, and what, um, selling to a bigger place solves for. Um, and this is, you know, Mercer has been doing uh, a number of acquisitions uh, to solve for these things. And uh, he talked about uh, new, new client growth, you know, that that uh, with a lot of uh, firms that that has slowed, they, they don't, uh, or, or stalled. Uh, so they're trying to solve for that. Uh, time management, you know, efficiency, productivity, and scale. Um, they get to a point where they have trouble, you know, managing everything that's going on and being productive managing their time and being able to scale at the same time. And they need some resources and support for that. Uh, talent, the ability, you know, to hire, attract talent, develop talent, train talent, um, and, uh, you know, making the, the tech investments and, and realizing the value from that talent. That's something that, that some firms have trouble with. And, you know, that those were all the reasons why he talked about uh, – it may make sense for firms to uh, combine with sell to, um, you know, join uh, a, a larger firm that has some of that capacity in place and can support um, the seller to uh, to grow, to manage time, you know, better and to have uh, be able to attract talent. Uh, Rush then talked about some of the buyer's challenges. Those included the fact that it is, in his view, a seller. It was interesting because later in the conference, uh, Dan Sievert um, uh, did some uh, significant analysis uh, or Echelon had done analysis that Dan shared. And he questioned the idea of it being a seller's market. I mean, that seems to be the, the, the theme. Uh, that's frankly my impression. Um, and, um, and certainly in terms of numbers, but he talked about, you know, later in the, in the conference more about how uh, valuations are and terms are and how he feels that uh, sellers are actually leaving money on the table that they uh, um, that, that you know that they do have you know some um, you know uh, some leverage there so you know while some may feel it's a seller's market uh, at least Dan seems to feel that sellers aren't fully taking advantage of that um, 
So, uh, and Rush also mentioned something that I'm concerned with, uh, you know, that there are a lot of funded buyers within patient capital uh, who are overpaying for deals. And I've seen that, you know, listen, I've been practicing for uh, law for over 35 or almost 35 years in various in- industries and, you know, and, um, you know, you certainly see cycles where more and more money comes into an industry and then uh, you lose, uh, you know, uh, firms lose deal discipline or there's more competition and valuations go up and then there's a downturn, uh, you know, where people have overpaid and they run into trouble. You see this in real estate, for example, all the time. Um, and you've seen it in, in various others. As I started in tech recruiting uh, some years back uh, where there were a lot of deals in that industry. And uh, certainly there is some who feel that's starting to happen in the RIA space. So Jim, Jim Crowley then asked, are we in a deal bubble? And Kurt and Dave's uh, reaction was no, we're, we're not at this point. Rush, on the other hand, felt that although generally we're not, you know, on the smaller, medium-sized deals, maybe not, he, it, you know, his comment was at the high end, it feels bubbly. <laughs> so that, you know, at the high end of the deal, maybe we're getting on the edge of, you know, we're starting to get into a bubble. It's starting to get bubbly. So that's, you know, that's an interesting viewpoint. And um, it'll be interesting to hear what you think. Uh, feel free to put some stuff forth in the comments. Uh, love to hear your views on where you think we are in the in the cycle of the RA market in terms of, you know, bubble, no bubble, overpaying, seller's market, buyer's market. What do you think's going on? Um, okay, the next session after um, the little break was, uh, no, before the break actually was a keynote debate. So this is a sort of a staple of the Deal and Dealmaker Summit uh, that uh, I'm trying to remember if Dan's done it every year. I think he, he may have. He's certainly done it uh, every year that, I, that I've been there, um, where he and Mark uh, Tabergian from uh, uh, from Pershing, uh, so Mark's the CEO and managing director of uh, Advisor Solutions at uh, BNY Mellon Pershing, and uh, Dan Siebert, of course, is the CEO of Echelon Partners, and um, they do this uh, this keynote debate format every year. This this time it uh, was moderated by Megan Carpenter, who's the CEO, CEO of FICOM Partners, one of the um, uh, uh, PR and marketing um, uh, firms uh, in the space. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and they what they do uh, every year is they take uh, certain topics. And, you know, in this case, they did five, uh, actually seven different topics. Uh, and they each take a side, and it's drawn by lots. So they're making an argument that they don't necessarily, you know, they may agree with it, they may not. It's just for the purposes of the debate, and there's, there's a voting from the audience on who they think won the debate. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of a fun format, uh, and it seems to work every year. Um, and then afterwards, if there's time, and, and there was time on five of the seven, um, they had an opportunity to say what their real views were, uh, you know, even uh, because, again, they may be taking the side of something that's not their real view. So uh, in that case, um, uh, the topics uh, this year were uh, the ideal way, way to grow. So is it recruiting or acquiring? Uh, and, you know, they went back and forth on, the, on that. Uh, at the end, the real view um, It was interesting. Dan, who, of course, is an investment banker who you would think would lean towards deals, actually said that he advises clients to recruit first, you know, grow through recruiting to try to get bigger so you're more in a position to do deals and then do acquisitions. Um, You know, Mark talked about another strategy, which is acquiring to get a foothold, like in a new geographic market, and then using that as a hub to recruit people thereafter. So, you know, those those are two approaches, not necessarily mutually exclusive. And that's interesting. Uh, the next topic was who owns the client uh, and, you know, the firm or the advisor. So in other words, how, you know, how do you set that up? And the bottom line advice, you know, from Dan 
uh, was, listen, the biggest thing you can do to keep advisors with you is to do a great job keeping them happy, right? That's the most effective thing. And then, you know, they don't need to leave and solicit clients because they want to stay and you've got a great platform and they're happy and you're providing great service to them. But he also recommends, you know, strong legal agreements in place to protect your interests as, and Mark agreed with that. Um, the next question was, uh, can high margin firms, uh, you know, which are firms that are making, let's say, 35% uh, margin or more, sustain their advantage? You know, Mark is very concerned that the average industry firm is not growing assets quickly enough. Regulatory pressure is increasing transparency uh, requirements and reducing margins. Operating expenses, you know, for good firms are at 30 to 35 percent, uh, but you know, so, uh, many are, have higher. Um, Dan pointed out that automation and AI and some of these new technologies can help increase margins with the same uh, pricing, and that firms are going to have to do that. And Mark didn't necessarily disagree, but he did point out that he feels actually that there's an over-investment in technology. Um, and he was saying that, interestingly, not to discourage investment in technology, but his key point was it's over-invested um, in but underutilized. So it's, you know, the technology investment is one thing, but the utilization of that technology is really what counts. So um, he feels that firms should not necessarily just increase their dollar amount, but make sure that, that, that what they um, – the new technology they invest in is utilized. The first start utilizing the, uh, their existing investment in technology in a way that you know gets the most value out of it. Um, there was then a discussion. The fourth topic was on share, uh, sharing synergy value and how it's split. And listen, frankly, the bottom line, uh, I think, conclusion on that is it's tough to calculate and tough to you know it's subject to negotiation. You know what that means is hey, if one plus one is going to equal three in some sort of combination. All right, you can easily value the one and the one, but then the extra one that's created, the synergy value, who gets the benefit of that? Buyer, seller, and how is that split? So that's always an interesting topic uh, to talk about. Uh, the fifth topic was uh, um, raising equity, good or bad. And Mark's big points on that uh, were that the equity, that the type, the type of money you raise needs to match the useful life of the asset. Okay, and you know the the cost of debt is so is so cheap these days. Um, you know uh, that's the other thing he talked about. But the first thing is right, match it to the asset. Right, don't borrow money for something that you you're paying back for a longer term than the asset is is, is you know is going to be worth to you. Um, the second one is is you know with the cost of debt being cheap, he actually you know there's been a lot of criticism in the press uh, with. Um, uh, particularly focused financial going over four times EBITDA debt ratio. Uh, and, you know, Mark sort of questioned whether that's a problem. Um, he said the cost of debt's so cheap these days, not so sure that the criticism is valid. Um, so, so that ratio may not be as much of an issue. Um, Dad did point out, you know, and Dan obviously comes from a world where he's done a lot of analysis uh, uh, and has experience in this stuff, um, that, you know, history tells us that more than four times EBITDA is a problem. So he had some concerns about that. Mark said the key is to look at the impact on cash flow. Um, so, you know, really how does that affect cash flow, which is why when interest rates are low on the debt, it's, you know, it's less of a concern, right? Because you could have the same amount of debt, but the cost of capital is lower. Um, Dan talked about the need to, to match, uh, basically match the need uh, you know, with the investing partners. So in other words, um, equity capital can bring other benefits, expertise, relationships, things like that. And what you want to do is not just look at the money, but make sure that you're, you know, uh, look at what else you're getting out of that relationship. 
Uh, and, you know, Mark's final point sort of relates to his first point about matching uh, the asset to the useful life is don't use that for depreciating asset. The, the final two topics, which we had less time to feel that, hear their real views on, were you know, the benefits of joining a multidisciplinary wealth manager management, um, you know, being the key to surviving, like, is that the, the way the industry is going? And it's key that you do that? Or can you stay independent in one niche? And they, you know, they sort of went back and forth on that. And I think that's an interesting topic. I mean, I think, listen, what you find in most consolidating industries, you know, you, you've seen this in the accounting uh, world. You've seen this in, in a lot of other places where, yeah, there is, there is definitely consolidation. Things come together. That's a maturing industry, and which means that the firms will be bigger um, and uh, more multi, multidisciplinary. Uh, but then there's also always room in the industry for smaller firms. Um, I think what happens sometimes in various industries, the middle starts, you know, starts going away. Things either stay niche, really niche, you know, smaller, or they get much bigger and it's hard to be somewhere in the middle. That's been the experience I've seen in other industries. And then finally, how, how wealth managers will fare as public companies, which is an interesting question, right? We've, there's only been a, a couple, you know, a few that's, that have gone out. Focus obviously has been one of them. Um, you know, and it's interesting the question to see how that will go, um, uh, you know, in in the future. Um, the next panel after the break was um, working with uh, private equity investors, which was moderated by Carolyn Armitage, who is um, a, a managing director at uh, at Echelon. Um, and uh, the panel on that one was uh, Jeff Deco, who's the CEO of Wealth Enhancement Group, James Gold, um, Jim Gold, who uh, is the CEO of Stewart Partners Global Advisory, and Larry Roth, who's the managing partner at RLR Strategic Partners. Um, the first thing, Carolyn presented some uh, echelon proprietary uh, research. Um, on a number of things, the one you know, the one thing that uh, was interesting to me, or the, one of the things that was interesting to me, was that um, P in PE investors were involved in sixty-one percent of deals above a billion dollars, um, and that sort of makes sense, right? Obviously, the the bigger deals are more likely to be funded deals. Um, so um, uh, you know, but it was interesting. It's been uh, I forgot what time period that was. I think it might have been two thousand eighteen. Uh, that was sixty-one percent. Um, Jim Golds of Steward uh, was talking about uh, PE firms uh, bringing, you know, basically more resources to than individual and family offices, meaning individual investors and family offices, but they also require more control provisions. So, you know, in that decision on do you take private equity or do you raise angel or do you, you know, um, raise family office money, that's the trade-off, all right? There's more resources, more capacity in PE firms, but they take more control. And, you know, and he talks about, listen, you know, before the bear market comes, we don't know when that is, but it's, it's going to be coming. It always does. And capital dries up, you know, capital's cheap now, maybe a good, a good time to get, get some money in place for the things that you want to do in the future. Um, Jeff Deco of Wealth Enhancement um, made a point on due diligence, which is interesting. It's something I talk to clients about, but not every one of them decides to do it, which is he says that on his deals, he actually has his attorney review every client agreement. Now, what, why do I say it that way? Um, because m many times the seller will say, oh, you know, we have, we have one or two forms of client agreements. We'll send you the form. And then, you know, uh, that's what we use for everybody. And they just review the form. Um, Jeff's point was, listen, you got to review every single, have an attorney review every single agreement. And listen, that could be hundreds or thousands in, in some of these cases, depending upon how many households, how many, you know, how many accounts there are. Um, but his reasoning is that, you know, there are often exceptions uh, changes to the form, modifications. People say they have two form agreements, but you find out that they have 12. 
um, you know, or, 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 you know, four, but then eight, eight more that have exceptions. And it's important to see what you're buying. He also, uh, uh, they immediately move clients to make sure there's negative consent going forward, even if there wasn't in the past, and to digital delivery delivery in their new agreements with clients. He thinks that's important, and, and you know, I think those things make sense as well. Um, Larry Roth of uh, RLL Strategic Partners talked about, um, you know, the, the uh, freedom that management has or lack thereof in terms of choosing to do deals when you have private equity investment. And what he says is that generally what he's seen is, you know, in his experience, because these are, the, you know, funded companies uh, on this panel, that, um, you know, the, the management does have um, discretion to choose the kind of deals, the, the targets that they're acquiring. But that discretion is within a very narrow range of parameters that have been set with the PE firm or by the PE firm. So, you know, they'll, they'll say, hey, we're only going to look for these type of guys, this size deal, the, this, this uh, you know, evaluation, this kind of stuff. So they'll set the parameters. And then within those parameters, management, you know, they generally trust management to make decisions, but not, you know, but you, you don't have the freedom to go outside those parameters. The other thing, of course, you know, he pointed out is that PE firms are looking for quicker returns. So, you know, they're looking to be out four to six years in theory or less if possible. They, you know, they'll usually be starting to pressure you around the three-year uh, time period to, you know, to um, find a way to, for them to exit and, and make a return on the capital. So you got to keep that in mind when you're raising, you know, when you're raising capital. So that was, you know, that was an interesting session. And, and you know, what I like about, um, you know, the people that uh, that Echelon had is that, you know, these are people who are not talking from theory. They have all, uh, you know, experienced the things that they're talking about in terms of deals, in terms of private equity investment, that kind of stuff. Um, the next panel was um, on recruiting and, uh, and breakaway deals. Uh, which was interesting. Uh, that one was uh, moderated by Bill Van Law, who's the CEO of uh, uh, WVL Group. And uh, the featured speakers on that one, the panel, were, were Bill Willis, CEO of Willis Consulting, Jeff Bischoff, CEO of Old Greenwich Consultants, and Rob Baldwin, President and CEO of Trade PMR. So on that, um, on that panel, uh, there was discussion of the primary driver, you know, like what were the primary drivers for advisors choosing to break away. And, uh, and Bill Willis talked about, you know, in his view, the primary driver is the lack of control that uh, an advisor has in the wirehouse environment, for example. Um, and he talked about, uh, you know, including to want to control their succession, that that's a big thing. And the wirehouse succession plans, you know, the sunset deals, as they often call them, are very rigid. You know, there's not a lot of um, uh, options to structure them in different ways. You get sort of locked into them. And, you know, he also talked about how bad press has tarnished uh, some of those brands as well, making them less attractive to stay at the wirehouse. Um, uh, you know, uh, and then uh, talking about, you know, when there's a downturn, uh, you know, that it won't be uh, as easy to make money, you know, and so things will change. And, um, you know, if you're locked into, you don't have flexibility, you're locked into a succession plan. When things change, that, that, that may not be the best for you. And, you know, the other thing that was interesting to him in terms of how things have evolved is that it used to be, you know, with the advisors that he would talk to uh, 10 years ago, maybe 10% of them asked about RA independence as an option. You know, they were uh, more looking to go to another White House or maybe to an IBD. Whereas now 80% of advisors ask him about RA independence. So, you know, that's, uh, that tracks the evolution of the uh, RA independence movement over the last 10 plus years. Uh, Jeff Bischoff of Old Greenwich Consulting 
um, talked about how, you know, with the bull run, uh, market run over the last, you know, whatever, 10 years, many senior advisors have hit their number already, meaning, you know, whatever their number is they need for, you know, retirement, where they're set, uh, they've hit it, you know, and they don't need additional money. Um, so they're fine. What he talked about, the vulnerable people, though, are the next gen advisors, right? The, the, the ones who are, uh, you know, the next gen down for that, uh, because once they sign a wirehouse sunset deal, you know, both sides are locked in. Now, if, you know, if, if the market goes down, et cetera, again, the senior people are, they're good either way. I mean, obviously they want more money, but they're, they've hit their number already, whereas the junior folks are the ones who can get hurt. So, you know, they're the ones who uh, are looking at, at more options and, uh, you know, and possibly not getting locked into these sunset deals and, you know, going independent to build enterprise value. Um, Rob Bowman, um, Trade PMR, talked about the primary driver that he sees is freedom. You know, the, uh, the ability to market yourself as you want, control investment decisions, and also obviously have a greater monetary share, um, and, you know, because there are so many success stories now that, you know, it's not, you're not breaking ground to go to independence. People have seen firms do very, very, very well. So they see that there's a, you know, uh, an ability to make, make more money and have more freedom. The, one of the weaknesses, he says, in the industry, and I agree with this, is that, um, you know, they don't seek out the competition. So, you know, owners of RIA firms look at people as competition. They shouldn't share information and they shouldn't meet with them. But that's how you get better su succession solutions. You know, you build relationships with other people um, in the business, whether it's in your geography or doing what you, what you do, et cetera. Uh, and there's a way to do that, you know, where you build relationships and, you know, they, they can potentially become merger partners, acquisition partners, succession solutions down the line. And, you know, that's an underutilized uh, opportunity, um, according to Rob. And, and again, I agree. Uh, all the panelists agreed that there's an inability to accommodate um, non-standard alts, uh, you know, is an issue that deters FAs from moving, meaning that they may have uh, alternative investments that are non-standard. Um, at uh, the wirehouse that that are, are tougher to be uh, you know accommodated uh, from a let's say you know a, a friendly broker dealer or an RA uh, you know uh, firm that's you know that's acquiring um, so you know that, that that that's one deterrent that comes up sometimes but there's still obviously the move is is much more strongly towards moving to independence and the advantages of that um, the next panel was uh, called the people side of deal making. And uh, and that was moderated um, by Jeff Warren of Russell Reynolds. And um, really, that was um, more of an interview uh, because the only other person up there was uh, Manny Roman, CEO of PIMCO. And it, you know, it was really more Jeff uh, interviewing Manny. And it, Manny talked about the need to have a shared vision and aligned incentives uh, because you can never fully underwrite culture. There's always surprises. So in other words, you know, in due diligence, upfront, et cetera, you like to think that you're going to, everybody talks about you need cultural alignment. You can do your due diligence on that. But, you know, his view is you can never guarantee it. You can never fully underwrite it. And you never can, you know, analyze it fully until things come in. So you have to understand that, number one. Then you also have to uh, make sure there's a shared vision and then align incentives going forward to help the cultures come together. You know, his view is that, uh, you know, he would rather pay for a healthy firm, you know, even if it's more money. They get into a deal value trap uh, and try to catch a falling knife. So, uh, you know, if, if, if a firm has revenues that are, you know, they're dropping or AUM that is dropping and there's some issues there and, you know, some people may say, oh, there's an opportunity to get that cheaper. His view is that 
you know, there's probably more there than you know about. It's heading in the wrong direction. He'd rather pay more for a healthy firm. That's his view. Um, you know, one of the things he says is never do a deal because the numbers work. Meaning that, you know, that's the only thing. You got to look beyond that. You got to break bread. This is a people business. You got to get to know the folks. Uh, and certainly I agree with that. And I think anybody who really does deals in any industry would agree with that. Um, he talks about the need to get investing, servicing, and social mission all in place. You can't just re rely upon returns, which won't last forever. Um, so, you know, there are other factors in terms of the way you, you deal with clients and the philosophy of the firms and the culture that are important to get in place to maintain client relationships uh, as opposed to just, um, you know, having the relationship be dependent upon good returns because those will go away at some point. Okay, the, the next uh, section was a section that Dan Siebert did on his own on deal structures, valuation, and transaction trends. And Dan talked about, you know, that we're in the longest expansion in history, four times longer than the, than the median, but the third slowest in terms of annual growth. So 3.9%. So it's way longer in years, but uh, it's, 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 it's been slow growth. And I think we knew that generally, but the, the stats are interesting. He, he talked about an example of, you know, what would happen uh, if the Dow went down 20% to a firm that is potentially looking to sell, let's say. So um, let's say the Dow went down 20% 20, uh, 20 and that more importantly that, you know, let's say the uh, assets and the management for the firm dropped that same 20%, which obviously is not always the case, but it's, that's the important part. So AUM drops 20% which drops revenue. And, and he had specific assumptions on how much they charge and this kind of stuff, which I won't get into. But in his example, which is a pretty, you know, um, fair example, uh, you know, Dow drops, uh, AUM drops 20%. Revenue drops 15% based upon that drop in AUM, 20%. Um, EBITDA then drops 60% and valuation drops 70%. Now, why is that important? And, and what, you know, why does that happen? Right. So in other words, what he's saying is, listen, if you get a 20 percent drop in the market, you're not going to get a 20 percent drop in your evaluation as an enterprise. If you want to sell, you're going to get a 70 percent drop. And the reason is because a 20 percent drop in AUM, which causes a 15 percent drop in revenue, you still have all of these kind of fixed expenses. Right. That are involved. Right. Whether it's rent or people or whatever. Now, you know, you can make some adjustments. But you're, but but without adjustments, EBIT is going to drop sixty percent because you obviously your profit margins aren't one hundred percent. So when revenue drops significantly and, and your cost basis doesn't drop at the same uh, percentage because you have fixed costs, your EBIT is going to drop a lot more quickly. And then you know when you because uh, valuations are often done on multiple of EBITDA, you get a much higher valuation drop. So it's important to understand that. And what does that mean? Does it mean you should panic? No, not necessarily in my view. I mean, either, you know, you look at it and, and that may cause you to decide to do a deal now while the market's still good, um, you know, or you need to understand that. And if the market's going to go down, you may have to wait a cycle, you know, uh, for it to go back up to get the, uh, that valuation back. He talks about uh, that uh, there's been a net reduction of 5,000 advisors per year in the industry. Um, so, we're losing more than we're, than we're, than we're um, bringing into the industry, which, you know, is a potential problem over time. It also means the AUM per advisor is going up, obviously. There are fewer advisors, but the AUM has actually increased because the market's been up. You're going to have much higher per advisor AUM. Um, he talked about, like, at what stage there's um, peak margins and going through the um, 
you know, the, the growth of a firm. So as a firm grows up to about a half a billion, 500 million in AUM, that seems to be where peak margins hit 40, 50, even approaching 60%. Um, and, you know, because obviously when you move up from 100 million or less up to 500 million, you're creating some, some economies of scale. There are some, you know, fundamental things, fixed costs that have to be in place no matter whether you're 100 million or 500 million. Then Dan says, after that, you hit something called the Valley of Doom and margins drop. And, and why is that? Because to get from 500 million, roughly up to a billion, you need to hire uh, and put in place additional management and have other expenses that you have not yet fully leveraged to get start getting you know uh, the profit margins back up, right? You have to advance costs to go to that next level. So what happens is you, you take a, you know, a, a decent hit in uh, in margins, if you want to, you know, in that move from 500 million to a billion in AUM. But of course, multiples go up as you grow. So you're increasing the enterprise value of the firm, but you're decreasing your, your cash flow for a period of time. The other thing you talked about is most private equity firms are looking for at least 3 million in EBITDA before they will invest. So that's, you know, uh, uh, a target if you're looking to raise private equity money. Um, you know, you're looking at uh, uh, getting the 3 million in EBITDA above. And then um, here, so this is where I, I alluded to this before, where Dan said he does not believe it's a seller's market. He believes it's a mixed market. Um, it, valuations are still materially below historical highs. So uh, Echelon's research uh, has shown, if you look at history, that we are not at peak valuations. And um, he said under 200 million valuations are very favorable for the seller, but in every segment above that, the valuations strongly favor the buyer. And this is where I alluded earlier what Dan was saying he feels, and, and by the way, he said this on, you know, we had him on, um, on, uh, on the podcast. Um, I don't have the episode number in front of me, but you can look it up, Dan. Dan was on the podcast, um, you know, maybe about um, six weeks ago um, or two months ago. And, uh, and, and that was something he said, you know, I made the comment that, hey, do you agree that it, it's a, um, Sellers market, and, and his point was that sellers uh, that valuations aren't as high as they they could be, and that uh, sellers are leaving money on the table. Finally, uh, well, not finally, but there were two other panels. Then the the, uh, the next one was actually the panel that I was on, and it was called Battle of the Outside Council: Advisors for Buyers and Sellers Negotiate a Purchase Agreement Live. And I got to tell you something. This was you know Dan suggested this format, or told us he wanted us to do this format. And it was, it, was, it was phenomenal. It was a blast. In fact, there was a big buzz after it. We got all kinds of good feedback. Uh, you know, Dan told us it was one of the high, highest rated uh, uh, sessions, um, which uh, my joke to him was if you uh, polled people in advance of the conference and asked which session would be, you know, the, one of the best rated, uh, how many people do you think uh, would choose the session with the lawyers? Um, but, but it was fun. So what we did was it was myself, um, uh, uh, Ted Cohn, who's a, who's a, a, a partner at Cohn, um, uh, Mainzer, uh, Chris Frieden, Chris, uh, Chris is a partner at Alston and Bird, and then Dave Mrazek, who's managing partner at Merchant Investment Management. So Dave's, you know, in-house there and is a partner there and ex, uh, uh, not only in a legal capacity, but also in a business capacity. And, and uh, the funny part about this was we had a prep call, uh, I think it was, uh, uh, you know, 10 days or something before the, uh, the conference. 
And, uh, and then uh, the next day, Dave and I were negotiating these exact issues on a real deal uh, with merchants investing in a client of mine. And, you know, uh, Dave and I know each other since his, his focus days, and we've uh, done a lot of deals over time. And the way they did it was, it was really interesting. They had four issues that, uh, you know, that we talked about. Um, it was the, the purchase price adjustment um, was the first one. And, and, uh, and on that one, um, I took the... Um, the seller side, and Dave Mrazek took the buyer side, uh, and we had some fun there. And then, you know, there was ones on the on non competes and uh, uh, and reps and warranties and employment agreements. Uh, I was uh, uh, on, on the other side with uh, with Chris on the um, on the employment agreement side, where where I on that, on that one was um, on the on the buyer side, and he was on the seller side. So we each we each had one buyer side and one seller side, and we um, you know we did a at the beginning, the the person on uh, generally on the um, uh, on the seller side would lay out the um, just just quickly, you know, what frame the topic and what the big concerns were. But then we'd get into an actual negotiation. We went back and forth um, uh, as opposed to just talking about it. We literally negotiated, and and the audience loved it. It was a blast. Uh, we had a, we had a lot of fun doing it, and uh, and you know, uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, those guys. We uh, I think everybody did a great job, and. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, it, it went over well. Um, the final uh, session was on financing options for fueling deals. And I love that Dan used that term. Uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, being having the Fueling Deals podcast and having him as a guest, uh, you know, I love that concept. So he had financing options for fueling deals. And that was a, uh, a panel that was moderated by uh, Mike uh, Wonderly, who's, uh, who's uh, one of the managing directors over at Echelon. And uh, on the panel, they had Aaron Hessler, who was a managing partner at Skyview Partners, Ed Swenson, uh, who's the COO at Dynasty Financial Partners, Dustin Manjone, uh, uh, who's the director at PPC Loan, and Rick Dannon, CEO of Oak Street Funding. And, you know, they really talked about the capital availability, uh, you know, in, in the market, um, and specifically what their, you know, various, uh, you know, products uh, and who they focus on. And, and, and all of them, uh, certainly, uh, you know, the three, uh, you know, other than Dynasty, you know, are, are either, you know, lenders or, or, or brokers, uh, you know, of, of banks who are going to land in the industry and, you know, for things like acquisition, succession, formation, that kind of stuff. Obviously, the, you know, the differentiator or the difference, uh, I should say, for uh, Dynasty is that Dynasty has come up with a couple of financing solutions for firms on its uh, platform. Uh, and they have this RPN note, which is a revenue participation note. In fact, I did one of the first RPNs that Dynasty did was with a team that that, that I was representing. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that that's an ability for uh, uh, Dynasty to uh, provide significant funding for, let's say, a breakaway team. Uh, and then they'll participate in a percentage of the revenue of the firm, you know, on an ongoing basis, at least until there is an ab ability to buy out the note at some point if somebody wants to. So it's not equity and it's not debt. It's not true equity and it's not debt, but it's a contractual right to participate in revenue. Uh, and then, you know, they also have a, um, a freedom note um, where uh, they, it's more of a, you know, traditional lending product that they do. Um, and that's often to, um, uh, with advisors who have notes, for example, at wirehouses and want to go independent and they need to pay off those notes. Dynasty provides that funding. Um, so, uh, you know, so that was, that, that was the final, uh, panel. Uh, Mark Bruno did a uh, recap uh, afterwards. Uh, Mark's uh, managing director uh, at 
investment news. Um, so he gave a re- recap that we had a, a you know a great cocktail party and, and and dinner and got to network and, and meet each other and and listen, um, you know the quality of the people, the quality of, of the connections, um, the. Um, uh, phenomenal people that uh, Dan and his team at Echelon bring in the room. You know, we're really great to spend some time with. Um, definitely, uh, uh, we'll be working with several of uh, uh, of the people I met there. So, you know, it's it's always uh, phenomenal for me to make those kind of connections. Um, and so, I you know, I pre- really appreciated being uh, uh, invited by Dan and Echelon to be both an expert and on a panel, but also, uh, you know, being in, that, in the room there and meeting folks and listening to the other great panelists. Um, definitely check it out. He does it every year uh, on the West Coast. There, there was a point which I think he did. He was doing another one East Coast, but I think it's. I think he's keeping it on the West Coast these days. It's definitely definitely worth going to next year um, and uh, and checking out you know what they have there. And then uh, obviously uh, you know Echelon is one of the uh, premier investment banking firms in the space, um, doing uh, it, uh, buy side sell side representation, uh, valuations, uh, consulting. Uh, so definitely uh, definitely check them out. Um, and I. Uh, Excited to feature uh, the Deal and Deal Makers uh, Summit on this on this uh, solo cast, and to have had uh, Dan Sievert on uh, an episode a couple months ago. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't, and it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week. Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.